Game Cool Books, Episode 53, A Question of Balance. This is on the chapter Alamo Gulch in The Subtle Knife by Philip Pullman. We're told it's a day and a night since their dramatic escape on the Yenisei, which is valuable information for anyone curious about establishing the chronology of Pullman's story, that we find Lee Scoresby and his passenger in a new world. Or, as Dr. Grumman puts it, it's new to those not born in it. The echoes of the contact between the old and new worlds in our history are strengthened by Lee's own heritage, Texan, New Dane, whose mother, at least, had a Navajo ring. In that parallel, it would put Lord Asriel in the place of Christopher Columbus. And that might remind us of some questions we were asking closer to the start of the book about where Lord Asriel is. We know now that he's not still in this world, but has moved on to another where he's built his basalt fortress. But if that was the case, then why did he come to this world first? Why was it this world of all the possible worlds? that they could see through the aurora. Well, I think that Grumman's next comment might clarify that a bit. He says, others have traveled between the worlds before. And he must be thinking of the guild of Chittagatsi philosophers who created the subtle knife. That must be what has led to their world uh, occupying this central kind of crossroads position. And uh, the thing is that what Azriel has done has, as he puts it, shaken everything up more profoundly than it's ever been shaken before. It's like we heard Lord Boreal telling Mrs. Coulter that even doorways that pre-existed Azriel's work now open in unexpected places. And in line with Dr. Grumman's emphasis on how newness depends on your perspective, we see this strange, apparently empty world from Lee's viewpoint. As the city of Shitagatsi comes into view below them, as he sees the rooftops, the children with no demons, the group of boys fighting. We can probably identify that girl who's egging them on, and that little boy throwing stones and smashing all the windows. Thinks of it as a playground the size of a city with a teacher nowhere in sight. Uh, This, again, coming from an author who was a former school teacher, carries that same kind of mixture of pity and archness that we get in the description of Bolvanger with its uh, timed activities and slovenly fire drills. From their literally higher perspective, um, and their figuratively higher perspective of adulthood, Lee can also see what the children cannot. He sees something like mist or a thickening of the air, a cluster of them unseeing but not unseen around older children like flies around meat and Grimmin explains with reference to the legend of the vampire 
that these specters are attracted to attention, to a conscious and informed interest in the world. In this case, that would be analogous to the blood feasted on by vampires. On one level, Lee might be right to call them the opposite of the devils at Bullvanger. But Grumman points out, with tacit reference this time to the language of William Blake's poetry, both are interested in the difference between innocence and experience. So perhaps it would be more correct to say the specters are the opposite of dust itself, as elementary particles have their corresponding antimatter. Candidates for the opposite of the gobblers at Bolvanger might then be the Egyptians, or the witches, the children, or even Lee and Hester themselves, depending on how you look at it. Grumman goes on to explain how victims of the specters are left in a blank, indifferent misery, describing it very like those who have had their demons severed by intercision. And that was Will's theory about what the specters eat, people's demons. And there's also that tension in aim that we first saw with the Egyptians when they were planning to assault Bolvanger. The tension between rescue operation and revenge. Lee is for helping these orphans, those older ones whose doom is imminent, whereas Grumman insists that their mission is of wider scope, that if Lee wants to put an end to cruelty and injustice, he must carry him farther on. There is real pathos in Lee's reply that seems to me the place you fight cruelty is where you find it. And there's anger in that too. He goes on to say he was so damn ignorant he believed shamans had the gift of flight. And in an instance of the importance of timing that we'll see this chapter concerned with throughout, we're told that feeling for the words, Lee essentially plays chicken with a certain square tower rising up in their path, as if to drive home Grumman's dependence on the aeronaut's acquiescence to carry him, to fly him where he needs to go. In perfect time, although not letting on that he knew, Lee lets go of the ballast and they clear the tower by six feet or so. So down to our last glimpse of the Torre degli Angeli, there's that insistent imagery of death that accompanies it. We might think back of those crows that Will saw clustered around it, and it seems they've moved on. The time it's taken uh, Lee and, and uh, John Perry to get there. And a little humbled now, Grumman, or Perry, says he has been among witches. Um, he's been uh, close to them, as we'll learn just how close uh, at the very end of the book. Um, those beings who fly in the magical way that Lee seems to have expected him to fly. Uh, Grumman says he has found folly everywhere, but also grains of wisdom and concedes there's probably more wisdom that he failed 
to see. Uh, whether it's folly or wisdom, they're on. Lee asks next. He says that this is the greatest wisdom, this journey. That they are going to find the bearer of that subtle knife. Tell him his task. And Lee reminds him that includes protecting Lyra. But he replies that it will protect all of us. Now, it's an interesting... Uh, argument or conflict here, maybe just because of the close quarters of the basket, but there's also something rather different about these two men in their approach to uh, keeping one's word, we'll say. Um, Dr. Grumman's answers here about flight might give us pause about the looseness that he puts language to and uh, his vow to Lee will be brought up again before the end of the chapter. The action really getting upon Lee's scan of the horizon back the way they've come, and feeling that ominous check on his heart when he uh, meets Hester's eye as they see the uh, other balloon on the horizon. And that tacit connection with Hester is a motif that we'll see more of. And then he delivers the news. There's enemies following them, tracking them. And that there's two options now. Going higher or staying out of sight. But putting himself in the other balloon's perspective, Lee supposes they must have already seen them. And that You'll go higher to catch a quicker breeze. On doing so, the other balloon either sees them or realizes that they know that they have already seen them and fires off its line of smoke, a flare, giving vivid and surprising simile of a toxin in the night, as in a, a drum beat or a, an alarm bell. I, I suspect that Pullman might have had a source for this image, this phrase, a toxin in the night, but I don't know what that might be, unfortunately. Again, we'll see the similar landscape from a new perspective. Those hills and wide bay and range of hills beyond, even mountains, are the ones that Will and Lyra are trekking through concurrently with this chapter. And we also see now Grumman in that trance that he spoke of before. The breeze that he summons, of course, moves both balloons faster. That balloon tracking them is just a scout, and the zeppelins that it has summoned with the flare come into view next. Again, he has a decision to make. He calculates, drawing on his experience. He'd rather not be caught aloft, nor over the water. He'll try to hide among the trees. But he needs to get to them before being overtaken by the zeppelins. They have made that connection between the ring he showed them and the scrailing that he killed. Now, Lee is understandably nervous. But Algruman says that he trusts his skill. 
That's where we get the phrase, it's a question of balance. But either way, Lee foresees there will be some shooting. The bulk of the chapter will be concerned with playing out this balance between pursuit and standing to fight. It will indeed end with the shootout. The combat opens already here, with Grumman working a different kind of spell now. Not in a trance, but with a ritual pattern that looks purposeful to Lee, again, from whose perspective we primarily see things. Suddenly, behind the four Zeppelins, pursuing them, their engines, that insistent mosquito whine, there's a massive thunderhead of storm chasing the Zeppelins as they are chasing the aeronaut. And one of the ships goes down, lightning struck. The sky is like a tiger. And again, I have to think of William Blake's iconic song of experience, Tiger. But, we're told, the gold is already fading. Now we get a contribution from Lee again, as he concentrates on getting them down safe among the trees. More than once he warns Dr. Grumman that they might have to jump, and remarks that it's another kind of balance now, that between being a matter of luck as much as skill. There's a crude rule of thumb calculation this time, and letting go of the last of his ballast, we get the <laughs> ominous phrase, they could only descend, they can only go down from here. When the wind in the trees is described as crashing on a stony beach, there's behind that another poet, I think, Matthew Arnold, his Dover Beach poem, bound up in that image, perhaps. Um, Lee's attitude toward fate, we're told, one of Pullman's favorite words, laconic, uh, is um, mixed with a kind of uncharacteristic despair now, that the one thing that he knows he should do, fly before the storm, is one thing they can't, that, that's sure to get them shot down. And uh, the drops of rain are, again, a, a stony image. They're like gravel. That stoniness we saw in the tower that they flew directly towards, and we'll see it in the stony landscape that will close the chapter with the battle. The images here are, again, of seeing and catching the grapnel, holding fast, the emptying gas bag catching the wind like a sail, but also potentially like a banner to give their position away. But their luck holds. Or was it their skill? Remember Dr. Grumman's trust. Or is it like the image of the anchor on the alethiometer, really one of hope above all? We'll see a corresponding image of a giant tree in the next book as Mary experiences a similar swing between despair and hope during her climbing of a huge tree. Here, Lee thanks the oak for rescuing them. We learn that Grumman can separate from his demon at this point, too, as she flies down to see just how far the ground is. 
There's business about getting the gas bag down under the canopy before daybreak. And during that hard work, a branch breaks, but Lee doesn't fall far. It pulls part of the balloon down, in fact, and drags it out of sight. A happy fall, a Felix culpa, a lucky fall. Um, when he gets down with the job done, he finds that the shaman has conjured up a fire and has coffee brewing. He wonders, is it magic? But turns out to just be boy scouts. The saying, be prepared. And uh, Dr. Grumman wonders if they have the boy scouts in Lee Scoresby's world. It was not magic, but dry matches. Again, being prepared. The pursuers know that they're there somewhere. They see another flare, and so they have to put out the fire. Um, the final image in this little scene is of pressing the wet earth over the flames. Now we get a series of strange, powerful dreams. It's yet another way in which we can visit other unexpected worlds and unexpected perspectives. Here, Lee's dreams begin with that image of fire, the symbolic immolation of the shaman. He's wreathed in flames, his skeleton and glowing ash. Might recall to us the burning of Tony Macarios, or it might be more like the mythical phoenix reborn from such a funeral pyre. Lee reflects a bit on the experience of a lucid dream next. He sees Hester sleeping, so gentle, and he's moved by the strangeness of it to be awake when she is not, and it's because, we're told, he is awake in his dream. Then we see more of the shaman in action. There's an abrupt transition to the shaking of the feather-trimmed rattle again that he used for the lightning, this time commanding that thickness in the air, the specters, the drift upward like a soap bubble. And then they're in the cockpit of the Zeppelin. Lee sees this from the viewpoint of the co-pilot and suffers the terror of the pilot whose face turns to him and as if to appeal, but he, Lee, has no power of movement. All he can do is observe. Perhaps this is the cost of casting the spell, to have to undergo the pain of seeing the consequence. Lee and Grumman, perhaps, are empathizing deeply with the enemy, even as they're taking them down. Something true and living, we're told, is drained out of the man his demon dying vanishes, and indifferent, he allows the ship to fly directly into the scarp of the mountain below. With a cry of Hester, Leah wakes, still immersed in the strangeness, seeing that the eagle demon is nowhere nearby. He thinks of his dreams as haunting phantasms, and ascribes them first to the place itself. But then, characteristically for Pullman, his attention goes to the light by which he sees, 
and it's a distant flicker, and he knows that the dream was true. Hester chides him now that he's twitching like an aspen leaf. He ain't dreaming, he's seeing. And she says, if she'd have known he was a seer, she would have cured him long ago. To imply, then, that this is a kind of fever, an illness, something that needs to be cured. But also, perhaps, something Lee has always had latent in him, a shamanic power of his own. It seems to resonate with the presence of Grumman working his power. We're reminded, of course, that Grumman says that he drew Lee to him using that ring. Abruptly, we jump into another dream vision. The vision takes over of floating in the air as a bird, feeling guilt and pleasure to be there away from his demon and in the presence of uh, the, the bird of his companion, gliding amid the calls of a thousand birds, fluttering upwards from the forest. Lee shares in the bird nature. And that bird nature, of course, is partly Grumman's. Uh, the human part of him is obedient to a stronger power whose authority is wholly right. This is precisely the kind of image of authority that Pullman has denied depicting among those who serve the magisterium. And the authority, so-called, but it suggests that he does entertain the possibility of just such an authority, which is good rather than evil, which is wholly right. And the image he uses for it, this imaginative conversion of all the birds turning as one in the magnetic will of their leader, a bird-human uh, this is a, an image the author will revisit in his story of Lyra and the birds in the little book Lyra's Oxford. That little book that forms the bridge between his dark materials and the book of dust. And as one with the birds, Lee knows what they must do. They pin their claws into the oiled silk of the zeppelin some get drawn into the engines, but all of them cover the vents and the windows in every inch until, again, we see the pilots helplessly firing guns at random into the sky, but there is less of a note of pathos here than of righteousness. Again, uh, the inevitability remains the same, but the means are different this time. As one, they leap free with wing beats and escape. The pilots, the men on board, have a few seconds of knowledge of what's going to happen. And with that, the dreams close as they open with the image of a purifying fire. Lee's body hot as if it was in the desert sun. And the shaman, this time deeply asleep. A normal forest bird song all around. In that peaceful interlude, we get a kind of recapitulation of some of what we heard about after Bullfanger, Lee again wondering now if he has discharged his duty. 
But as before, he concludes that it's not simply contractual, but a moral obligation he has to continue the job and see it through. There is one Zeppelin left. Hester argues with him for survival first. Lee knows that if he were in charge, as before he thought about if he were on the other balloon, what he would do is to wait this time and see where they come out of the woods. Grumman, though, has more information. He knows they're going to burn the forest. They have a kind of weapon that ignites when touching water, developed by the Imperial Navy for their war with Nippon, the name for Japan. And he knows about Lee's visions, too. He remarks he can tell you clearly as what Lee saw happening during the night. So, Lee packs his valuables, all of which are portable. Most importantly, checks his rifle. It's loaded and dry. He resolves, kind of dramatically here, that he's an aeronaut no more. Knows it will be a miracle if they escape at all. But henceforth, he'll move like an insect along the surface of the earth. Now those dreams of burning are nearly literally prophetic as they smell and then hear and then realize that they might have been barbecued in their sleep, but somehow their pursuers know that they'll be able to escape in time. They want to catch them alive and are just trying to see where they'll come out of the forest. We get the image this time of a banner of flame in place of that balloon that they'd worried about showing up their position. And as Lee had experienced with the birds, they're accompanied this time now by creatures of the forest fleeing, reaching them along with the waves of heat. The trees are like torches, blossoming like orange flowers. They go upslope and hope that they're too far away to be seen come to a narrow defile of dry riverbed. Nothing comes naturally, Grimman says. He's replying to a uh, question about his demon being able to separate, whether that's the witch-like power. And his answer implies that even the witches have to learn everything, if they are indeed human. It suggests that some sort of separation on terms other than the oblation boards set up, might be possible even for otherwise ordinary people. Although Lee is not separated from his demon, she hops ahead of him and he follows where she leads. While Grumman, whose demon flies, in this case has to labor, leaning on his walking stick. Now they realize by the change in the airship's engine and behavior that they must have been seen. The sound of its approach is their sentence of death, Lee thinks. And the way that this is conveyed is by Hester stumbling and Lee realizing that even his trustworthy demon has stumbled. Now they could have been mown down by machine gun fire just as they could have been boiled and barbecued the night before, but the fact that they aren't confirms that these pursuers intend to capture and not kill them. The Zeppelin hovers above the ground at the highest point it can safely reach, 
as a stream of men with wolf demons comes out. Only one rifle between them. Grumman offers that they surrender, but Lee has made up his mind. Maybe not even terribly long before that he'll make this a uh, last stand. If Dr. Grumman can head for the gulch and Lee, with this situation, can hold the men off, it's possible that he'll even still escape. Now, Grumman says he had no strength left to bring the fourth one down, as if apologizing without so many words. But Lee has other last words in mind. He demands that the shaman tell him before he goes, which side are they fighting for? And is what they're doing now going to help Lyra? And will he remember his oath that he swore? Because Lee loves that little girl like his own daughter. And he will spend eternity pursuing whatever is left of Dr. Grumman if the man does not keep his word. Once more, Grumman swears. And to the end, Lee listens to his demon's advice. Not the big boulder, but the smaller one, so he can see better. And along with this practical consideration, despite the roaring in his ears, he has something much more imaginative going on. The memories of his childhood playing at the Alamo. It's not clear to me whether they were literally at the Alamo or they were playing a game of the Alamo, or both. But anyway, at the ruins of some old fort, they play at being the Danes versus the French rather than Texans and Mexicans, as in the historical Alamo. Once more, that image of the Navajo ring is uh, highlighted Lee places it on the rock. He's got a superstitious streak, and perhaps even more than that, a visionary or shamanic streak we know now. He remembers that Hester used to play as a cougar, a wolf, a mockingbird, and she has to recall his attention to this moment. She says, this ain't play. Now again, this mirroring of perspectives as the men that are coming up the hill see the problem as clearly as Lee sees his own advantage, that one man with a rifle and enough ammunition could hold off even a platoon like theirs for a long time. Again, because of the terrain, the setup, the fort, the stronghold. And then Lee has another idea that comes to him as suddenly as some of Lyra's used to come to her. And he fires on the engine and grounds the final Zeppelin. One shot. <laughs> Which is important, I guess, plot-wise, for preventing it from heading Griminoff at the pass. And then, he counts his assailants. He knows he has enough bullets if he shoots well. Something like 25 or 30. And Hester, beside him, is like a little stone herself. I think there's a great moment of, of connection here as Lee reflects that she was no beauty, but her eyes are described lovingly. Uh, that moment passes. 
she says she can hear but can't understand what the men are saying. They must be speaking in another language, Russian. So that maybe that's not one of the ones that Lee uh, shifted between when he was talking to Dr. Grimman's tribe. Anyhow, she tells him to aim straight. He feels badly about taking lives up until the very end, but she insists that it's theirs or Lyra's. And so, when he gets shot at, he feels a little better, he says, about shooting back. Kills, brings down the first man. The battle moves quickly, progresses as echoes, smells, and the whole world burning, we're told. After the initial salvo, he finds that he's wounded with a bullet that clipped his scalp. He lost count, but he, again, at Hester's bidding, reloads while he can, loosens up the gun with some spit, get it moving from the dried blood, that blood, that attention that we had been thinking about from the vampires, uh, and maybe even a bit of that miracle is uh, still hanging in the balance here. <clears throat> but too, too late, he's hit in the shoulder. He knows the pain hasn't yet raised the courage to assail him, but it will soon. He thinks of how, how these are men like him, just like in the night he saw them up close as they died. But though it doesn't make sense, Hester tells him to do it anyway. The uh, feeling of Hester's face pressed against his is a surprising one for him. Kind of like being apart from her the night before when he felt that thrill and that guilt. Now she feels guilt. She says it's her fault for telling him to take the ring. Her face is wet with tears. But <laughs> kind of sardonic or laconic mode up until the end, he asks if she thought that he ever did what she told him to. And then, as he's hit again, he thinks of the witch and remembers, but too late, the flower that she'd given him to call her at need. They should have called before. They should have done a lot of things, they say to one another. But in the moment of their death, we get a powerful reunion image that they are never apart for a second, that if the bullets and the enemy are seeking the center of his life, they will not find it in his body, but in Hester, that is his center. So the pain, like a pack of jackals, comes after him. It will leave him eaten bare, uh, kind of a pun on what will actually happen to his body. But uh, the one man left for him to fight is trying to creep away, exactly what Lee, up until the end, never did. And so he takes aim on the zeppelin of all things as he began the battle, so he ends it engulfing the remaining troops in a fiery death, um, whether by luck or by skill, with his final bullet and perhaps a little help from the burning forest below. 
thinks of those poor men and he thinks of, as Hester tells him, helping Lyra to help him get over what he's done. Together, as close as they can get to one another, they died. It's a incredibly moving end to the chapter and the last that we'll see of this beloved character, Lee Scoresby, for quite a while, though he will come back, as he promised, in his eternity in company with John Perry. Um, I think it's worth pointing out here that he's thinking of this as a game from his own childhood, um, which becomes real the same way that his dreams actually and visions of the night before were real. He's also enacting exactly the sort of game that Will had always played out in his imagination. And he is in Will's place of rescuing Will's father. I don't think we ever get a mention of Lee's father, and he's just yet another of these absent parent figures in the story. Um, it's also notable here how the demon's um, separation can be learned, and that the separation that comes in death, it seems, can perhaps even be overcome through that great unity that Lee and Hester have. Um, now, it's probable that, again, Pullman has a particular uh, connection with the Alamo in mind from some story or perhaps film. Um, that's certainly where he gets the name for Lee Scoresby character and probably a lot of his uh, personality as well. It's worth mentioning that, of course, Pullman talks about his writing and storytelling as his way of living out his own childhood dreams. Uh, all around a difficult and very moving chapter, Alamo Gulch. That leaves us just one more to go, and I will try to get my thoughts about it out uh, a little sooner. Uh, thanks for listening, and I hope that you will check back in then. Take care.